Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host as uh, we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas, yours truly, Brian Shilton. Archaeology is a science that can confirm or deny events of history. When the Bible makes narrative claims, it is presenting history as opposed to when it presents parables or poems of the sort. So the question is, does the biblical narrative match the archaeological record, and vice versa, does the archaeological record match the biblical narrative? Today we have a very a wonderful guest, a very fascinating guest, and that is Mr. Ted Wright. Uh, Ted uh, received his bachelor's degree from, uh, in archaeology from the Cobb Institute of Archaeology at Mississippi State University. He also received a master's in apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary, has taught Old Testament for years, and has actually been featured on CNN on uh, a program called Jesus, Faith, Fact, or Forgery, and also on the History Channel's Mankind, The Story of All of Us, which aired around 2014. So it is. Uh, so Ted Wright has went on several uh, archaeological expeditions. He's spoken at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, and it is my pleasure and honor to welcome Ted Wright with us on today's podcast. Ted, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey Brian, uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor to be here with you today, sir. Well, as we ask um, all of our first-time guests, if if you which I hope and pray that this won't be our only time that having you on the show, we'll hope to get you back on because uh, the conversations we've had before the podcast uh, recorded have been very interesting. And I want to tell you, if uh, if you're listening to the podcast today, you are in for a treat because we have a lot of great stuff for you today. Uh, but if you would uh, share with everyone how you first came to Christ. when I was uh, uh, living at home with my parents, and uh, my mother uh, took me to a vacation Bible school, and I was about nine years old. And uh, so, uh, long, to make a long story short, uh, the pastor, uh, we were all in the main sanctuary, and, uh, you know, uh, so, so the pastor came out and explained uh, the gospel. And, um, and I, it sort of just struck a chord with me. I understood that I was a sinner, and that I wanted to receive the free gift of eternal life. And so, uh, you know, at, at, you know, later in the day, I told my teacher, you know, uh, you know the pastor was talking. I, I want to, I want to receive that gift that uh, is offered through the gospel, you know, through the grace of God. And so, um, I did that, and uh, I was baptized in that church. It was Avondale Baptist Church, and it was in West Memphis, Arkansas, which is where uh, I grew up for uh, several years, and then we moved on to uh, Memphis and then down to Mississippi. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I was nine years old, and I did understand it, and uh, my faith, you know, has, since then has grown, and I've asked lots of questions, which really kind of got me to apologetics, because I, had, I was one of those kids that had a lot of questions. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I always uh, bugged my parents with a lot of questions, and my son has taken that after me. And so uh, I'm, I'm being paid back for that now because he has tons of questions as well. <laughs> well, as we were mentioning, uh, now you've talked uh, Old Testament for several years. Um, it, within the within the Bible narrative, uh, there are several things that are challenged 
one of those things is the Exodus, uh, which we find in the uh, the Pentateuch or the Torah, depending on uh, how you term it, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, so the Exodus has often been challenged by critical scholars. Uh, what has led to such skepticism? Uh, it's a great question, Brian. Um, you know, I was just talking to a friend recently about this very question you just asked, and I was I didn't know you were going to ask this particular question, but that's fine. Um, but that's a great question. So where I would say the skepticism began, and I mean, obviously there's always been people who have been skeptical about the text, you know, whether back then it was written down. But as far as the modern world goes, I would probably place that probably during the time of the European Enlightenment, in which, uh, you know, men begin to see, uh, again, to have more of a scientific outlook, and they begin to see that knowledge comes to the senses and that the Bible is not really necessarily a science book, it's more of a religious book, so they begin to separate um, the Bible away from any other writing during the time of the Enlightenment. So since the time of the Enlightenment and going on uh, into the uh, probably you know, 18th century, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, that skepticism began to grow and grow, and scholars began to see the Bible as basically just a book, a worthless book that comes to telling any kind of historical truth. And uh, that is until until the... Uh, advent of archaeology. Archaeology began to reverse a lot of the skepticism that uh, people began to see in the text. But I would say probably the skepticism began during the time of the European Enlightenment. Now obviously uh, folks like David Hume would have a big influence on uh, some even the anti-supernatural biases that we see even in modern society. Yes, absolutely. Hume, uh, Spinoza, and uh, I was trying to think of other, Immanuel Kant is a huge figure, it figures into biblical skepticism, um, you know, Kant separated the noumena from the phenomena, I don't know if I know your listeners are familiar with philosophy, but, but yeah, uh, you can, uh, several years ago, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, who I uh, studied under at SES, uh, wrote a book, I uh, wrote, actually wrote an article uh, when he was president of ETS called Beware Philosophy, A Warning to Biblical Scholars. In this article, Dr. Geiser outlines uh, some of the warnings that we should be we should be on guard against. And philosophy affects everything. And not only does it affect biblical scholarship, but it also affects archaeology as well. Uh, the, the interesting thing about philosophy, Brian, is that uh, there is no no realm, no area of study that philosophy does not does not affect. And so that's why my master's degree, uh, even though it's in apologetics, it's concentrated in philosophy because the philosophy affects everything. And one of the things that I, as a scholar, want to do and want to continue to do my research on is this influence of poor and bad philosophy in archaeology and and also in historical study. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times people will look at uh, critical scholars and say, well, and I've even heard people say this, they they must be uh, more unbiased uh, pertaining to archaeology since they are anti-supernatural, but is it... It really show, demonstrates the opposite that they have uh, th- their bias affects their the way they interpret data and the way they observe history in and of itself. I mean, it's like with Hume. I'm you know uh, really familiar with him. That you know if if you cut out the the possibility of the miraculous, then it really is going to affect a lot in the way you view anything in life. Absolutely, and I want to even add this, Brian. Um, Several years ago, I was preparing for a lecture in one of my Old Testament classes, and I had one of my books that I had as an undergraduate in archaeology, and it was written by a very prominent Israeli archaeologist by the name of Amon Ben-Tor. And in the preface of the book, 
I mean, I, I got a highlighter, and he just was just going off and, and making these statements. And this is, now mind you, this is a book published by Yale University Press. And Dr. Ventor, Professor Ventor, is making all these grand sweeping statements, but not one single one of the statements had anything to do with archaeology at all. These were, these were the conclusions of philosophical uh, uh, thinking. These are not, you know, everything he was talking about had nothing to do with archaeology and with the discoveries of archaeology. It all was just, he was basically talking about anybody who, uh, tries to connect the Bible with archaeological data. It's just the, the epitome of irrationality. And I'm like, why? What, what does that have to do with anything? You know, how is that connected to, to discoveries in archaeology? Uh, and so he was just on this tirade. But a lot of, a lot of archaeologists that do that, a lot of scholars that do that, they will make statements. And, uh, the conclusions have nothing to do with they're, they're not conclusions of archaeology. They are conclusions of philosophy. So that's all fine and dandy, but... Uh, but that's philosophy. That's not archaeology. Archaeology is the study of material remains of past human cultures. And what an archaeologist does is we try to we try to understand these material data uh, that's left behind by a particular culture, and we try to understand uh, what these people, you know, what was going on at a particular site. Now, obviously, when we have a historical text, uh, this will let us know uh, more insight uh, into the historical background of the artifacts or, or the, the material data. Um, and obviously there's a lot of things that go into place. It's not, there's no absolute perfect objectivity. Everybody has their own biases, but uh, what we try to do is we try to eliminate all the biases and just try to, you know, uh, give a good, sound uh, reading of the text or of, rather of the, of the artifacts. But basically there are three... Uh, historians, we call them primary sources, and uh, really, yeah, there are three of those, Brian. There's the eyewitnesses of a historical event, then we have the historical data, the record, and then we have the archaeological remains. So there's three primary sources when it comes to reconstructing the past. Obviously, with the Bible as well as many other documents in the ancient world, the eyewitnesses are, are dead. We don't, we can't, you can't interview the eyewitnesses. So the only thing that we have left remaining is the archaeological data as well as the historical data if there is, in fact, any historical data. And there's, you know, obviously writings are limited and sparse. So whenever we can find a document that is going to throw insight into a particular uh, set of artifacts, then we certainly want to consult that. And I will just say here at the very beginning, at the outset, that of the, of the books or of the documents from the ancient world, the Bible is head and heels far above any other document in the ancient world when it comes to historical reliability. I mean, it is very, very historically reliable. Now, has every single thing been found? No, I mean, it hasn't. But what we've found so far uh, essentially uh, backs up what the biblical narrative says. Um, obviously, there are gaps and there are things that we're still learning about, uh, but by and far, the Bible is an extremely reliable historical document when it comes to ancient history. Amen, amen. We know of the events in the Old Testament, the Exodus is one that uh, probably has faced more uh, criticism from from scholarship than perhaps any other event in the Old Testament. And I'm surprised to even find that uh, this skepticism doesn't even come from unbelievers, but and, and not only uh, from from the genre of liberal Protestantism, but also from 
some some Jewish scholars, not all, but some Jewish scholars as well. Uh, so before we investigate the Exodus itself, uh, what is the best date to present for the Exodus account? Uh, is it an earlier date or a later date? Uh, what's the best date? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I, I just want to read a quote here from uh, one of my my favorite mentor, professor, friends, uh, Dr. Eugene Merrill from Dallas Seminary. He says, basically, he says, the date of the Exodus is the most important event in Israel's past. Uh, it's so crucial to the rest of the story that it's mandatory to give some consideration to the problem of ascertaining that date, as well as many other important dates as possible. Obviously, there's no reckoning of time in the Old Testament with reference to B.C. or A.D., or any other point fixed or known in the Old Testament authors. So the matter is more complicated than might originally seem. But to answer your question, Brian, um, if we just look at the Bible itself, according to 1 Kings uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says the Exodus occurred about 480 years prior to the laying of the foundations of Solomon's Temple. And I'll read that passage to you. It's 1 Kings 6, 1. So the Bible itself gives us the date of the Exodus. It says in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 6, it says, And it came to pass in the 400... Uh, an 80th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. So here in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 6, we have uh, evidence uh, of a date. Now, uh, we know, we're, we're pretty sure, in fact, most scholars are, are pretty certain that Solomon undertook the laying of, his, uh, of that foundation of his temple in the fourth year of his reign, which is around 966 B.C. So, um, that being said, uh, if we just use standard, normal hermeneutical practices and we give at least the benefit of the doubt to the biblical data, then that would place the Exodus at around 1446 B.C. So, uh, so, we, if, so if that's the correct date of the Exodus, then we're going to find evidence of that in the archaeological record. And the dating would appear to, to as you mentioned, uh, play a huge role because if you're looking at the wrong date, then you're you're not going to find the evidence you're seeking after. Absolutely, that's exactly right. Um, and I would say this, and we, we can get into it in a moment here and talk about this. But let me just say this at the beginning, and this is what I would tell my students uh, as an archaeology in my archaeology class that the Exodus and conquest stand or fall together. So if you kind of take a, if you take a kind of a macro view of the whole thing, this major historical event, um, in other words, if, the, if, if we're going to give uh, at least the benefit of the doubt to the biblical text, then uh, you're going to basically see the Exodus and conquest together. In other words, if there was, let's just say, just for the sake of argument, there, if there was an Exodus and if there was a conquest, then you're going to expect to see them in sequence. In other words, you'll see some evidence of an Egyptian exodus, and then you'll see some evidence of a some type of military conquest in uh, what is now you know Israel or obviously Canaan or Palestine, however you want to call it. Um, but in any case, um, there are different dates of that, and one of the other dates that there is given is around twelve, uh, approximately twelve ninety BC. That's the other date. So about a 200-year difference uh, in that date uh, later. Um, so the earlier date seems to be the date that fits the data uh, from the biblical text. 
But then there's also a problem that not only does the, 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 uh, the, the later date not fit with biblical data, but it doesn't fit the archaeological data. And guess what, Brian? Surprise, surprise. Most, most skeptical scholars, well, actually not skeptical, most scholars in general accept the latter date. They accept the 1290 date. And the reason, one of the main reasons why they do that, well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, and, and, but one of the reasons is because of the excavations of uh, Kathleen Kenyon in Jericho, which we'll talk about later when we get to that in a moment. But uh, essentially what Kathleen Kenyon did was she redated uh, the archaeological layers of Jericho, which was uh, initially excavated by the University of Chicago under the uh, over, oversight of archaeologist John Garstang. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. But so, and the other reason too is in the text itself it says that the Israelites uh, built store cities of Pithom and Ramses. So, so a lot of people will place the Pharaoh of the Exodus as Ramses II. In fact, in, ni- in the 1950s movie, uh, I don't know if you remember the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the Pharaoh of the Exodus. That's presented there in the 1956 movie was Yul Brynner was Ramses I. Um, it was the great building. He was one of the oldest reigning pharaohs. The problem with the Ramses I, I mean, there's multiple problems. Number one, the date, uh, is that there's not one single shred of evidence in the archaeological record of any kind of plague or any kind of conquest or anything like that. Uh, Ramses I does not fit the data. Uh, so, in fact, most scholars today who, and if you go to a, an average university and you take a class or took a course in ancient history, uh, they're going to look at the, they, if they even mention the Exodus at all, uh, they'll say, yeah, there's a story in the Bible of an Exodus, but we know it didn't happen because we know the Pharaoh was Ramses the first and there's no evidence that he, you know, there's any Exodus or like that. So, so um, also scholars uh, will, they say, well, 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 where did the Exodus come from? Well, they said that during the Babylonian exile, uh, these Jews who were there in Babylon, well, they do, they do believe in the Babylonian exile, that the Jews were in, in the captivity in Babylon in about the uh, 5th century B.C. So um, what they do is the Israelites made up the story of the Exodus to give them some type of credence or some type of, uh, you know, legitimacy that they, had, they have history, and that's where it really came from. And so that's kind of where it is today is that people think that, you know, most people think the Exodus has zero historical value. But as you said earlier, if, you, if that's the date that you put as the Exodus, then obviously you're not going to find the evidence for it because it doesn't exist. Not only does it not, does it not exist for the Exodus, but it doesn't exist for the conquest either, which is why most 99% of people today don't believe in the conquest or that it happened. Uh, because there's not any evidence of there. Uh, it's not like Indiana Jones. You know, I don't know if you remember the first Indiana Jones movie where uh, Indy and his uh, sidekick, Solik, are looking for the, the, the tomb of the, the Well of Souls. I don't know if you remember that, Brian. Any oh, yeah. Any fans out there. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> they find some date. They found some – Indy finds some bit of information that lets them know they're digging in the wrong place. They're not, they're, the, the Nazis are not going to find the Well of Souls because they're digging in the wrong place. Well, it's sort of like the same way. The skeptics are looking in the wrong time frame. Obviously, they're not going to find the evidence of the Exodus because it doesn't exist in that time frame. It exists in about 1446 B.C. So am I understanding this correctly, that, that all of this, uh, the, the date setting and things of this nature is coming from the research of Kathleen Kenyon uh, in Jericho? No. So 
bit confusing because um, uh, what I'm referring to when I talk about Kathleen Kenyon is our archaeologists who, who uh, because before that, most people had, uh, had in, fact, in fact, William F. Albright, who is considered the father of biblical archaeology in America, in the world, really, uh, the golden age of biblical archaeology happened around the late 40s, early 50s in America, and uh, William Foxville Albright, who was at Johns Hopkins University, was considered really the father of modern, modern archaeology in, in the world today, or modern biblical archaeology, rather. And what, what Albright did was he did believe that there was a historical exodus and that he placed it, you know, in the general time frame that we did. But Kathleen Kenyon, she redates the site of Jericho, and because... Jericho's dates connect with the Exodus, and they're sort of like a slide ruler. So if the Jericho dates are incorrect, then by default, then the Exodus date must be pushed up further. So, so what she does is she says, well, there is no evidence of a conquest of Jericho. So, um, so she redates the site, uh, other than uh, you know, previously to what Garstang had done. But there's the, the, the problem, and we can come to this now uh, if you want to. Sure, is that, sure. Is that the way we date, I mean, there's, it's, it's sort of a, I'm trying to think of an easy way to, to explain this, um, and to explain it in a simple way. So archaeology, you know, there, there are several different ways that we arrive at dating, but one of the major ways that we, we date sites is by pottery, and it's called ceramic typology, the science of ceramic typology, or pottery uh, typology. And um, so, in other words, when imagine if you can imagine just a, a chocolate cake or a layer cake, and you have different layers in the cake. Well, obviously, the lower layers are going to be the older layers, and the top layers are going to be the newer layers in an archaeological site. So, the site's called a tell. So, Jericho is a is a classic tell, T E L L, which is an Arabic word which means mound or hill. And so, so Kathleen Kenyon. Uh, she excavates later in the 1950s, and she um, she's basically going back in with some new strat- stratigraphic methods and new methods for excavating. And she tries to well, she does, and she redates the site, but she admits a very very uh, important piece, or in fact, millions of these pieces of pottery is called Cypriotic bichrome pottery. And so we know from other sites. Uh, archae- and when I say we, I mean archaeologists who work in the field, who work at Hotsor, at Gezer, and other locations in the Near East. So in other words, when you find this Cypriotic bichrome pottery, you find that type of pottery, we know from other sources that it will date a tell or a layer according to that particular time frame. Well, well here's the thing. In, in Kenyon's uh, official excavation report of Jericho, she not once mentions the Cypriot background pottery. Hmm. The problem with that, Brian, the, the big issue with that in layman's terms is that because that undercuts her redating. If she were to include that the site included these millions and millions of Cypriot background pottery, it would undermine her dating of the site. Now, the, the scholar who's done the, the lion's share of work on this, in fact, he's the one who's kind of spearheaded this. It's a, a colleague of mine at Associates of Biblical Research, uh, Dr. Bryant Wood, and Dr. Wood um, has basically defended uh, John Garstang's original, uh, you know, excavation and dating of the site. So, so, so really, the battle. Interestingly enough, and ironically enough, uh, Jericho again is another battleground. Uh, it was a battleground three thousand years ago, and that's a battleground today. <laughs> so, 
predate Jericho, and it sort of has a, it has a direct correlation and connection with how we date the exodus. So there's a, sort of an index site that helps us to, to sort of, and again, there's other sources as well. It's not just Jericho, but Jericho is a very important site for, uh, for dating the exodus as well. So, so let's go back and say this. So if, if uh, Dr. Brian Wood is correct and, and Garstang is correct in their dating of the conquest of Jericho, then that means that would still place the exodus at around 1446 B.C., uh, plus or minus a couple of years. So when we look at that date, we can know from, our, from Egyptian sources, now we know who the pharaoh of the Exodus is. And it's not Ramses II. Rather, it is, um, it's actually, interestingly, before I mention his name, interestingly, I, I found it very ironic and interesting that in the Exodus account uh, in the Old Testament, it doesn't mention the name of the pharaoh. It just says pharaoh. Uh, it never mentions his name. I mean, it could have mentioned his name. But I think it's actually on purpose. I think Moses, of course, being the writer, the author of the Pentateuch, I think in a moment of irony, because you remember Brian, the story um, in the Exodus, and when Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, you know, let my people go, and, you know, God, you know, God wants you to let them go. And, and throughout the narrative, whenever Moses goes before Pharaoh, Moses or Pharaoh would say, well, who is God? I don't know him. I don't know who this is. You know, I will not let him go. Right. And a touch of irony, we don't know who Pharaoh is, but we know who God is. <laughs> we know the God of the We know the God of the Bible. So I think it's interesting that for millennia, we don't know who the Pharaoh is. And now we're, you know, based on historical and archaeological detective work, we can sort of now ascertain who the Pharaoh was. And it was none other than a Pharaoh named Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II. In fact, in Exodus chapter uh, Exodus chapter five verse two, it says, "Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go." He says. And uh, so, interestingly, um, the book of Exodus is not going to exalt the name of the Pharaoh, who, by the way, according to Egyptian archaeology and history, the Pharaoh is considered to be the god, the divine god. He, he was literally God's representative on earth, uh, according to the Egyptians. So, um, so according to this chronology, um, it was uh, it was actually uh, Amenhotep II, which uh, I'll tell you about in a second here. Um, and we know that he lived; his reign was around 1450 to 1425 BC. Um, now, again, I want to quote Dr. Eugene Merrill, who uh, who I consider to be one of the top scholars in this area, historical scholars, at least in the Old Testament. He says this about, about Amenhotep II. Our identification with, of Amenhotep II as the pharaoh of the Exodus is supported by two other considerations. First, although most of the kings of Dynasty 18 make their principal residence at Thebes, far south of the Israelites in the Delta, Amenhotep was at home in Memphis and apparently reigned, for the most, reigned there for most of the time. This placed him in close proximity to the land of Goshen and made him readily accessible to Moses and Aaron. Second, the best understanding suggests that Amenhotep's power did not pass to his eldest son, but rather to Tutmos IV, a younger son. This is at least implied in the so-called dream stela found in the great base of the great sphinx in Memphis. So, um, so also we know this as well about Amenhotep. We know a little bit about what he was like. Amenhotep II was a famous sportsman in his youth, and we know this from, from several of the uh, inscriptions that we find in Egypt. We find him hunting on a chariot. 
Uh, we find him, he's very adept at using a bow and arrow. Um, his father was Tutmosis III, who is incidentally considered to be the Napoleon of Egypt. He was a very, uh, you know, as a military man, he was uh, very adept at military, you know, campaigns, things like that. Um, but then also, Brian, let me mention as well, some, some new developments that have been made uh, in regards to Amenhotep II. Um, earlier I mentioned Dr. Uh, Dr. Bryant Wood, and again, another scholar who uh, is a, a brilliant, brilliant man in his own right. In fact, he just got some new articles that are coming out, uh, which uh, hopefully we can, I can give to you. You can give to your listeners some links to some of his articles. His name is Dr. Douglas Petrovich, and uh, he got his PhD at the University of Toronto. And um, he explores an interesting uh, connection between Amenhotep II and the ancient Egyptian city of Avaris during the Egyptian 18th dynasty. So in the article, uh, Dr. Petrovich explores some different theories about the exact timing of the abandonment of this city, which would seem to coincide with Amenhotep II. Now, what does this world has got to do with the Exodus? Well, if Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of the Exodus, then what Petrovich discovered is that there was a city, an ancient city called Avaris, which is in the Nile Delta, which is right there, in the land of Goshen, and this city becomes abandoned. Mm. In other words, there were people living in here. Now, here's an interesting thing, Brian. Do you know who lived in that city of Avaris, or who in this one particular area that it just goes blank archaeologically in the ninth year of his reign? There was a in fact it's called the crisis year of Amenhotep II's reign. We know the exact year. Wow. The ninth year of Amenhotep II's reign. The city, the part of the city that contained his military goes missing. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so, anyway, um, and it's not just that. Um, so, so, given that Tutmosis III and Amenhotep II expressly ascribed praise to Amun-Ra for military victories on their Asiatic campaigns, so they, they're basically the father and the son. The father is Tutmosis III, the son is Amenhotep II. They, they would give praise to this Egyptian god called Amun-Ra for their military victories. And um, so interestingly, in that same year, the same year, the Christ year of Amenhotep II, uh, Dr. Petrovich and many others call it a perfect storm of events, because not only does his military go missing, but he also orders the destruction of the images of the Egyptian gods. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, now that would be... that. That's... All of that's kind of, you know, it's making a compelling argument because, you know, if you just logically put it all together, you can see things beginning to fit together like uh, missing pieces of a puzzle fitting just right. Absolutely. And this would be, this would actually coincide with what we would expect to see. I mean, uh, obviously the Egyptians are not going to plaster their defeat uh, of a foreign god on their palace walls, but you would expect to find, you would expect to see behavior and things in the archaeological records that would coincide. Now, it doesn't matter if it's just trying to go for, look, no, this this all matches. This is based on scholarship. It's based on historical detective work. It's not just a hunch. It's not just made up. This is all, it coincides together. And then also, like we said earlier, we said that the exodus and conquest stand or fall together. So if that is the case, assuming that is the case that Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of the exodus, then we would expect to find destruction of Jericho, the first city that was destroyed as the Israelites left Egypt um, after the 40-year uh, wandering, obviously. 
and in fact the dates do match that, is uh, the city of Ai, or, or excuse me, Jericho. Jericho was first, and then Ai. And again, um, to go back to Jericho, uh, the first thing uh, we, we mentioned Jericho about, you know, obviously that that's a very important uh, archaeological city that we have to look at. Um, when John Garstang excavated Jericho in the 1930s, he dated City 4, in fact, specifically at City 4 to the Late Bronze Age. He was using pottery to date the site. And again, as most people are generally aware, archaeologists have been using pottery uh, to accurately date uh, sites for, for years. And this is called uh, ceramic typology. And it was uh, this, this method, by the way, Brian, of, of using pottery to date archaeological sites was pioneered by, again, William F. Albright, Another, another gentleman by the name of G.E. Wright, George Ernest Wright, which I don't know if I'm related to him. That would be great if I was. <laughs> and another ar- archaeologist named Nelson Gluck. Um, but in the early 90s, uh, Dr. Brian Wood, also uh, his doctor at the University of Toronto, he began to question the interpretation of, of uh, Kathleen Kenyon's uh, pottery dating. And again, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there are some really great arguments and uh, scholarship by Dr. Wood that uh, Dr. Garstang was correct in the, the dating of uh, Jericho, so I can I can pass that on to you. But the site that I actually took part in excavating uh, in Israel was a site called Kerbet El Makater, which is located in the West Bank. It's located about nine miles north of Jerusalem, and it's the second city that the Israelites uh, destroyed, and that's the city of Ai, Ai, as we uh, sometimes like to call it. But I believe the correct pronunciation is called Ai. Um, so in any case. Just as in Jericho, we find the destruction in uh, in the Late Bronze Age, in around uh, you know, I believe it, I don't know if the date's correct. I want to say it's 1401 or 1405 BC. I don't, I don't have the dates in front of me right this second, but in any case, the dates do coincide. And interestingly enough, in 2013, at our site at Turbot El Makater, uh, they uh, the team found uh, one of the a very very interesting scarab. And the scarab is actually from the reign of either the Third or Amenhotep II. And here it is in Israel. Now we know uh, that the Israelites took things from the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. And what's interesting about this is that we, we actually find this scarab in Israel, and it independently dates the site to the time of the conquest. Wow. In fact, Christianity Today named the, uh, 20, the scarab from Kerbet El Makater, as the top archaeological discovery of the, of the 2013 year. So uh, very exciting discovery. Um, and uh, where, where we excavated, where the section that I particularly excavated was along the Canaanite Wall. So basically it was a fortress. And according to Joshua chapter 6 and 7, 6 or 8 rather, um, we know it's kind of, a, kind of a long story about what happened at I, you know, what happened. I won't go into all the details there. I'm sure you can uh, folks who read it for itself. But uh, to cut to the chase here, what we, what we discovered was we found a late Bronze Age Canaanite city that was fortified and that the gate of the city pointed north exactly as the Bible says. And we know that it was a classic ambush according to the biblical text. And we find this. We find a city burned uh, just like we find Jericho burned. Uh, we find Jericho, the, there was actually two sections of the walls in Jericho that had been breached. They actually, it was an earthquake or something that made them fall, and they formed a ramp up into the city. The city was burned, just like the Bible says. The city of Ai was burned, just like the Bible says. The dates match, everything matches. And uh, we found sandstones and bronze arrowheads 
along our wall in, in, in that uh, late Bronze Age time frame. So we've got good archaeological evidence of the conquest uh, as well as the Exodus as well. Well, this this brings a question to my mind. You know, it, it seems to me that just hearing this, that there's a vast amount of evidence supporting. Um, like like you say, uh, Bryant Wood's uh, interpretation, which is, is uh, obviously uh, confirming what Garstang has said, it, it seems like there's a great deal of evidence. Why aren't we hearing more about this in uh, in popular historical circles? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, well, that, I would even ask, that why don't we read more about this, even in, in Christian circles, um, and it's the same, it, it's an issue that has been, that's plagued archaeology for, for, for years, for decades, and that it's called the publication problem, because there's a lot of work that goes on uh, in doing archaeology, and obviously the field work is part of it, and then you've got, obviously, the publication, and then there obviously there's debate, and there's different, you know, you go to different uh, conferences, and everybody debates their theory, and so... Uh, and everybody has kind of their their iron in the fire, uh, if you will. And so, as an, I mean, I, I'm an archaeologist, but I'm also an apologist as well, and, and a thinker and a philosopher. And I, what I try to do is I try to piece all the pieces to puzzle together. And I mean, people are sort of confused, you know, well, which theory, you know, one somebody says this, somebody says that, and, they, and they're different, they have conflicting theories. So I think people... I think there, there's just a little bit of skepticism, like, you know, well, who, which, who, which, who do we believe, you know? Uh, but I'm just here to say, I, you know, I've studied, I've studied archaeology for like 20-something years, and, you know, the more you learn, the more you find out you don't know. But one of the things that I can see is that people are afraid. The bottom line, Brian, is that people are afraid to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. Even Christian scholars are afraid to allow the Bible to just speak for itself and give it the benefit of the doubt and whenever you do that whenever you allow it to speak for itself just give it the benefit of the doubt test it to see if it matches the historical record then it will come through with shining colors and it always does and so um you know but for the secular world understandably you're not going to hear about it because uh they're not going to give uh the bible the benefit of the doubt although i think there is a movement today i think there are people today are starting this you know, because obviously truth is not going to die, and you can't kill it, and um, the truth will come out eventually. And I think, uh, you know, you can pull over the wool over people's eyes for so long until they begin to see that, you know what, uh, the Bible's been around people. Skeptics have been saying for years the Bible's not true, and now every, everything we pull up out of the ground matches what the Bible says. So as uh, I forgot who said this, every time the spades turn, an archaeologist, you know, just affirms the Bible again and again. And again, we can't prove everything in the Bible, but what we can do is, at least for me, when I, when I would teach archaeology, I would teach that archaeology can do three things. It can, uh, it can clarify, affirm, and illuminate the biblical text. And when I say clarify, I mean that it can provide light on certain historical background of the, of the text. Affirm, what, what, what it does there, is it can actually uh, affirm historical events. It could say this happened, or at least this is historical archaeological evidence that this happened, or this did not happen, or we don't. Uh, the evidence is inconclusive at this time. But for the most part, uh, the Bible has been confirmed historically uh, again and again and again. And then, of course, uh, it illuminates the text. It clarifies the text as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as, as you were uh, mentioning that, it, my mind went back to, again, the... Uh, 
at least in popular society in the secular world that you know there's this anti-supernatural bias and and if you give the bible credence and boy i tell you you talk about shaking someone's worldview uh to the core a lot of times that that does well i'd say all the time that would you know if you affirm um the things that the bible what the bible is saying is true uh Changing well before we change gears off of the Exodus, uh, I'd like to get your opinion uh, on a couple of things, and then we're we're going to move on to uh, some archaeology that you've mentioned that confirms Christmas, uh, as this is the Christmas season. Uh, but before we do that, let me get your opinion. Where do you think is there is there a location? Uh, around the Red Sea, of course, some people have postulated it. It could have be uh, could have been the uh, Sea of Reeds or the Reed Sea. Uh, is there a location that you believe that the uh, Hebrews or the Israelites crossed over a body of water into on onto the other side? And is there a particular area that matches uh, the biblical account of Mount Sinai? Um, that's a great question. It's a loaded question because <laughs> it has a lot of uh, a lot of different answers. Uh, some of them are controversial, uh, but yes, to answer your question, uh, the area that I like, and I'm not sure if you're really familiar. Obviously, you've got the, the the triangular peninsula called the Sinai, and in between those, you have the two fingers of the Red Sea. You've got the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. The Gulf of Aqaba is on the right, or on the east, rather. And on the west, near Egypt, is the Gulf of Suez. Uh, now, there's a lot of different debate scholarship as to exactly where it is. Uh, but I will say this. Um, I will say that I do not believe, based on textual, archaeological, historical, geographical considerations, I do not think that the Red Sea is the reed, the Sea of Reeds in the north in the Goshen area. Um, I personally believe, and I'm not dogmatic about it, but I really, I really find fascinating an area um, across from Saudi Arabia called Nueva, Nueva, uh, Nueva Beach, which is basically, uh, when you go back to the text itself, again, always go to the text as, as my mentor and colleague uh, at SES, Tom Howe, would say. What does the text say? <laughs> right. What does the text act? We always go back to the text. And what does the text say? The text tells us basically that as the Israelites left, as they were as they were leaving out of Egypt, and obviously in the Sinai, there were Egyptian garrisons in the Sinai. So they're not going to camp out there. They're not going to stay in the Sinai. They're going to go to where? They're going to go to Midian. They're going to go to Midian, which is where Moses. In fact. At very, going all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, uh, when God spoke to Moses on the burning bush, um, God, he says, you know, well, how, on, how, I'm gonna, how am I going to know that you're with me? He goes, you will bring the Israelites back to this spot. In other words, you're going to come back to the place where I spoke to you, the burning bush, which is in Midian. So there's some different debate about where Midian was. But based on a lot of historical consideration, uh, I think there's some good arguments can be made that Midian is in Saudi, what is now modern Saudi Arabia. So if that is the case, then that means that the Israelites would have been in a spot where they had their back to the Egyptians, 
and they had their where they were headed was going to be away from Egypt into a spot where they could actually worship God and be where Moses was in Midian, where he received the team where he eventually was going to see the Ten Commandments. And so that spot is on the uh, it's on the western bank of the Gulf of Aqaba, about midway through. So if you look at the finger of the Gulf of Aqaba, about midway through, there is a big, large expanse of land, or actually a, a sandy beach. And around that beach, there is a, uh, it's called a wadi, uh, W-A-D-I. And it's basically, a wadi is like a dry riverbed. So it's, imagine like a huge, gigantic canyon, sandy floor, now, now it, the text says, to go back to the text, it says that the Egyptian army was behind them, and the sea, the Suf, Yom Suf, was in front of them, the sea. Hmm. And they had nowhere to go. In fact, the, the, the Israelites were like, we're, we're going to die. We're, you brought us here to die. And so that's the spot that I think is interesting that I tend to think is very, the very likely spot. I'm not dogmatic about it, but it certainly seems like the spot. As far as Mount Sinai... I know there's been some conjecture and some research and some studies being done, and there's different theories. Uh, honestly, the ones that I've seen, I'm just not convinced. They, they're all a stretch to me. Uh, but the one that I think is interesting is the one over across in the Nueva Beach in Saudi Arabia called Jabal al which is some people believe it's in Saudi Arabia, and I tend to lean toward that theory. Um, that Mount Sinai might be in modern Saudi Arabia. So the place where they cross over, or, or excuse me, the so Mount Sinai and a lot of these events as they cross over would be in the in the general region of Saudi Arabia. What is modern Saudi Arabia? Is that correct? It is in Saudi Arabia, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of interesting things that uh, that are, that surround that mount in Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> it's burned on the top. Uh, which is exactly what the biblical text says. Uh, in the back of it, there is a huge, tall, split rock called, well, what the biblical record calls it, Yerophadim, where water issued forth from the rock. Uh, there's, uh, at the base of this mountain in Saudi Arabia, there are, there are <clears throat> rock formations, 12, 12 pillars. Um, it's marked <laughs> off. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, somebody could have obviously planted that, um, but... There's just a lot of interesting coincidences that surround the site. There's also an altar site right at the base of it that actually have uh, contained petroglyphs of of Egyptian Apis bulls. We know that the Israelites, when they when Moses went up to to mount, the top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, the Israelites and Aaron were building a golden calf. And at the base of this mountain in Saudi Arabia, there is a huge altar that's surrounded now currently it's surrounded by a barbed wire fence and off limits to any visitors because of the archaeological sensitivity. It's in Arabic and English, these, these warning signs in Saudi Arabia. Wow. And uh, there have been many people who have come out. I know there have been some controversial people, people that I don't necessarily think are the, the best, most trustworthy archaeologists, but like Ron Wyatt. But there have been other people who have been there, um, uh, people may be familiar with Bob Corduke and others who have been to the site, and they confirm that this indeed, and, and not just Bob Corduke, but many others as well, uh, certainly one that uh, should be considered as a possible site. Now, we can't be dogmatic about it, but, uh, but the one site, if, if people go to Israel today, and they go to the, they go to, they go to the Sinai region, and they go to the, to the uh, 
monastery of St. Catherine's in Sinai. That is the traditional place of where Mount, where, where the ancient Christians believed Mount Sinai was, but that actually came from uh, Constantine the Great's mother, Helena, uh, in the 4th century AD. But there wasn't any archaeology or any historical sources. In fact, this is where monasticism began. It began in the, in the, Sinai, uh, in the Sinai Desert uh, in the 4th century. So uh, some monk or some, some desert ascetic person had some type of visual vision or mystical experience out there. So, uh, so it's, in fact, it's the oldest, one of the oldest monasteries and oldest libraries in the world, the library of St. Catherine's Monastery in, in the Sinai Peninsula. But there's not any, any archaeological evidence at all of any kind of, of exodus or any kind of uh, uh, you know, artifact or anything like that at this site. And there have been other sites given as well. But I just don't. I just find them personally find them unconvincing. Well, I tell you, this <laughs> this is so fascinating. I I've told some buddies of mine uh, who who, uh, who go down to the National Conference on Christian Apologetics that that I, I love the I love the science uh, lectures that they have the sessions. But me, I, I'm really drawn, really especially drawn to the history, uh, the historical side of apologetics, and this is just. Well, I tell you, this is just fascinating to me, and I could just talk all day about this. Uh, but, but as we change gears, we have about uh, looks like ten, fifteen minutes left. Uh, I'd like to change gears. You mentioned something about archaeology concerning Christmas. I mean, we are here in the throes of the Christmas season, and you said that there is some archaeology that confirms some of the things that we learn about uh, concerning the birth of Christ. Uh, would you share some of those archaeological discoveries? Brian, I'd be glad to. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, the Exodus, uh, you know, we wouldn't think that the Exodus would be connected to the Christmas story, but it actually is. Because it, let me just go back to the Exodus for a second. Um, the, in the Old Testament, the Exodus is the greatest salvation event in the history of the Old Testament. Mm. It's the greatest salvation event. There is no, I mean, the rest of the Old Testament looks back to the Exodus. The Exodus is the one that is referred to again and again. It's not just a movie, it's an actual event. Right. In which, you know, it's symbolic. In fact, uh, you know, I would say this, that, uh, you know, Christ is predicted in type and prophecy in the Bible of the Old Testament. So it's not just, um, you know, uh, it's not just some, some type of, uh, you know, made-up story, it, it does have symbolism, but it also has reality to it as well. Right. So, um, so the Exodus, you know, and all that points to the Passover lamb, you know, the, the deliverer, even the Pharaoh who, when Moses was born, um, you know, is going to try to prevent, uh, you know, Moses from being, you know, the deliverer or whatever, being born, he issues the death of all the firstborn male in Egypt, you know. Um, and so there's some interesting parallels between the Exodus and the birth of Christ. And uh, so we come to uh, Luke chapter 2, in which we read about this man named Herod the Great. And uh, when Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, uh, obviously Israel was a nation that was occupied by imperial Rome. And um, Rome ultimately controlled all the eastern Mediterranean at the time. And uh, Israel did have uh, a king. In fact, uh, he was even called King of the Jews. The man was Herod the Great, or Herod the First. Uh, Herod leads 
very largely in the, in the history of the time of Jesus and his birth. In fact, I would even say that Judaism, as it was practiced in Jesus' day, uh, couldn't really be fully and truly understood apart from Herod's influence. Now, archaeology gives us, Brian, a, a really clear picture of this infamous king. And I'll just kind of summarize it, because I know we're, we're kind of running out of time here. But archaeology gives us a really interesting picture of Herod the Great when the time, during the time of the birth of Christ. Um, he was given the, king of, the title King of Judea, if you, people may not realize this, by the Roman Senate in about 40 B.C. on the advice of Mark Anthony. Now, Mark Anthony was a, uh, an ally of Herod, and Herod was an ally of Mark Anthony. And obviously, we know that Mark Anthony ended up uh, dying in the Battle of Actium in 32 B.C. with Cleopatra. Uh, and then uh, Octavian then becomes the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. But Anthony uh, considered Herod to be the most capable man of prying Judea from the hands of, uh, at that time, a, a Hasmonean prince named Antigonus, as well as a nation called the Parthians. Both of these, these Hasmoneans that were Jewish in background uh, and this other nation called the Parthians, they wanted control of the region, and the Romans wanted it. So they considered Herod the guy, Mark Anthony considered Herod the guy to do this, and sure, sure, certainly enough, he did. Uh, and so they, so as, as uh, Herod defeated these two kingdoms, the Parthians as well as uh, the Hasmonean prince, uh, with Rome's help, of course, he established his own power in the area, and he became king of the Jews. And so, but interestingly enough, uh, Herod was not Jewish. He was an Edomian. Um, from Edomia, which is uh, modern-day uh, Jordan. If you look at uh, where the Jordan is to, to the south, it was consistent of something called the Edomites. These were uh, Arabs, Jews, Nabataeans, and the Nabataeans are the ones who built Petra, ancient Petra. So this was the, this was the uh, homeland of Herod the Great. Um, now, Christians primarily know Herod through the Christmas story is recorded in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew's account, Herod learns of the birth of Jesus through the wise men, or the Magi, uh, very likely from Persia. The Magi or the wise men witnessed some astronomical event in the east, and they somehow connected it to the birth of Israel's promised Messiah. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, uh, some conjecture about that. Some people say that maybe uh, the wise men came from Babylon, and maybe they read the book of Daniel. Maybe they read some of Daniel's writings. No way. Really know for sure, but somehow they connected these wise men, connected the birth of Christ with this astronomical event. And we know it is a known fact historically that Herod was a tyrannical, murderous uh, monarch. In fact, he even killed his own family. Uh, he thought that they were going to stand in his way. Um, in fact, he, at one point, he had 2,000 survivors of five cities murdered, killed, that rebelled against him. He had his brother in law drowned. He executed his uncle, his wife's grandfather, his wife. His mother-in-law, three of his sons, he also murdered uh, many of his servants, friends, soldiers, uh, relatives, uh, many times on flimsy evidence that was concocted. So he was a pretty evil guy. Right. Um, now, what we know about him, we know through the biblical record, he's also confirmed, Brian, through archaeology and through history. Now, Josephus does give us uh, some interesting uh, things about his death. Now, we know... Obviously, uh, Mary and Joseph were warned in a dream that uh, Jesus was being threatened by, uh, you know, from, by, by the king. And so they're warned to flee to go to Egypt. Interestingly enough, they go to Egypt. <laughs> they go down to Egypt, and they leave out of Egypt. So, again, this connection between the Exodus and what's going on there, there's a lot of, of amazing symbolism that's going on. But in the, in the antiquities of the Jews, 
Josephus records that Herod died in 4 BC. It also notes that Herod was buried in Herodium, uh, which is one of the several desert fortresses that Herod built uh, because he feared the Jews would rise up against him. Interestingly, Herod did not fear the Romans because obviously he was buddy-buddy with them. He feared the Jews. He feared the Jews would rise up against him. That's why he built all these fortresses. Um, So, and again, in Matthew chapter 2, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So, um, so interestingly, we, we see uh, archaeologically that the Christmas story is grounded in a, in a very firm historical time frame uh, of Herod the Great. Now, there's more to it than that, but I know we don't have time to get into it, but... Uh, just, just so the listeners will know, I mean, the New Testament is filled with literally hundreds of historical references to, to, to people, places, events, cities, uh, kings, rulers, and all of these have been confirmed through archaeology or through history. So uh, we've got some really, really strong evidence from the New Testament time period that these events happened in a, in a very, very strong historical setting. These are not just stories that are made up out of thin air. Now, and one quick thing, one last final thing, uh, as, as, as time's ticking away, it's hard to believe <laughs> that our time is uh, has already gotten away. But uh, December 25th, is there a claim uh, either to the birth of Christ or to something happening? We were talking about this before the, before the podcast. Uh, is there something connected with the Christmas story on December 25th uh, that we know for sure or, or fairly certain of? Yes, that's a great question, Brian. We were talking about this earlier, yeah, before the podcast. We were just kind of chit-chatting, talking. And um, what, I was, what I was telling you, explaining you about, one of the, one of the top scholars in this field um, is a gentleman, a scholar by the name of Dr. Harold Honer at Dallas Seminary. He wrote a book called uh, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And uh, so there's, there's a couple of, I mean, scholars, conservative scholars by, by general, there's, there's a couple of dates. I mean, nobody knows for sure exactly of the of the birth of Christ, and Dr. Honer did his dissertation on this subject, on these and historical, and he did a lot of, there's a ton of historical data on this, and he used um, all kinds of different dating and things like that. Uh, there's a couple other good books on chronology. Chronology has to do with the exact calendar date, and whenever we get into ancient history, it's, it's sort of difficult to get an exact calendar date. But specifically to the, to the date of December 25th, uh, I was mentioning to you earlier, uh, some of the listeners may be familiar with this, and you can go on Amazon to get it. Uh, I think you can get the DVD. I'm not sure you can download the video file. But several years ago, there was a layman uh, lawyer who actually uh, plugged in some of these conservative dates into a, an astronomical database, and actually an astronomy software program. Uh, the astronomy software program is called Redshift. And what it does is it takes into account uh, Kepler's laws of planetary motion. So what that means is that, in, in, in layman's terms, you can basically get plug in a date. You can just say, let's say, April of 4 B.C., and you can plug that date in, and you can go to anywhere in the world. Like You can say, okay, I'm going to be in uh, Paris, France, April 4 B.C. What did the sky look like in the east? And it will tell you based, this is all based on mathematics, based on, I mean, it's science. It's mathematical precision. It's astronomy. So 
I mean, obviously the stars, they don't change, and we know that the Earth's spinning on its axis and all these things. So Kepler has these laws, and there's these, these are really, they make them very precise. They're, so in other words, the universe is like a giant clock. Like the Bible says in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, or in the creation account, God set the stars in the heavens to, to be a clock. The big giant clock is what, what they really what they are. So all that to say, when this gentleman called, it's called. Uh, by the way, the name of the video is called the Bethlehem Star. And this lawyer plugged in the date of what happened. What, what historical? Is, is there anything interesting, interesting that happened around the time of Christ's birth? And what he discovered was that what, what he was trying to find out was what was there any kind of star over Bethlehem and around this time frame. And what he discovered was the date that this, it's, in other words, it's a, something called, it's a Jupiter goes into retrograde motion over Bethlehem in December 25th. Wow. And it's, <laughs> it's fascinating. So he places the wise men visiting Jesus and Mary and Joseph, by the way, He's several months old by now. He's not a baby. He's, you know, obviously he's back from, he's back from, uh, from Egypt because they go to Egypt because the, obviously, you know, Herod's trying to, to kill all the babies. And now that he's dead, Jesus, it's safe for them to go back. So when he goes back, and I forgot the exact date that, uh, on the video from Bethlehem Star, but it's based on one of these conservative dates. And I want to say it's something around, uh, three or four BC around that time frame, but the date is, is, is December 25th is when the three wise men would have visited the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And, it's, and, and they didn't know, he didn't know that date. It just turns out that that's exactly the date. It would have been December 25th, something like 3 BC. It's when the three wise men would have visited. Because it's based on astronomy. It's not based on, I mean, this was discovered just a few years ago. It wasn't even known about. So, um, obviously, early Christians. Uh, where, where, why did they begin to worship Jesus on December 25th? I'm not. I'm not exactly sure the reason why. I know there's some probably some good uh, evidence of that uh, elsewhere through church history. Um, probably, I'm going to guess probably in around the fourth or third or fourth century uh, A.D., which is when the time of Constantine the Great and his mother began to mark some of the holy places. But yeah, so the December 25th date is the date in which it is believed by some. And including myself, I have a leaning toward that, that that is when the wise men visited the baby Jesus on December 25th. Do you have a uh, particular date that you favor as far as uh, potentially being the birth date of Christ? I don't, Bob. I, it's several years ago. You know, archaeology is a huge subject, and I've got, I've got several books in my library on it. And uh, I was doing a little bit of research on it, putting together some lecture notes, and I had some dates I was really, really, uh, really looking at. Uh, and I, just off the top of my head, I can't think of it right now. I don't I'm really, I can't really definitively say, you know, which which date I kind of have a leaning toward. But I do think that the astronomy. I mean, when you look at astronomy, you can't. Uh, the thing about that is that it gives you an exact date because you can't, uh, you know, at that time they didn't have the twenty fifth back in Jesus' day, because that right. calendar did not exist yet. But as it turns out, because it's based on astronomy, then uh, you can you can, come, you can pinpoint a date pretty precisely. But I would just say, you know, we, you know, you don't have to really have the exact date. I mean, some people want to have precision. I mean, yes, we, it's great to have absolute certainty and exact dates, but that's 
so that's few and far between. I mean, there's it's a rare occasion we have an exact date, especially when you go further back in time. But what we have is we have a really, really good, strong historical record and archaeological record that really, really backs up what the biblical record says as far as these major events that happened in the life of Christ. Amen. And that's the most important thing. And folks, I'm going to tell you, we I've had some uh, conversations with some folks online and talking about... Uh, the, the the fact that there's evidence backing up uh, the biblical record and and I don't know I I hope you have been as blessed uh, from this podcast as I've been because boy I'm gonna tell you we have a faith that gives us hope uh, not just because we wish it to be true. Uh, but because there's historical evidence backing up the claims of the Bible. And so uh, we want to thank Ted Wright for being with us today. Boy, I'll tell you what, brother, I hope we can get you back on here very soon. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I have too, Brian. Thank you so much. Sorry to talk your ear off. Oh, no, you're, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it, and I know our listeners have as well. For Ted Wright, this has been Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. We'll see you back next time. up all night or up with the sun whether you're a weekend warrior or an everyday hero whether you hail from homeschool or old school whether you're hands-free or hands-on wherever you come from wherever you're going and for everything in between liberty university is the place for you the nation's largest private nonprofit online educator